first residence for heaven's mighty king. Now, when you think about the terms, the, the most the, the Hebrew word most commonly used to refer to the tabernacle, uh, there's a Hebrew word called mishkan. And that means dwelling place. And the term, again, you think about it, does not emphasize the building or the structure as much as it emphasizes the occupant. Now, we also find another term. You'll see it in, in your Bible. It will be tent or tent of meeting. And so as you're reading through, especially in Exodus and later on when they're talking about the tabernacle, you will find that when the Bible wants to focus on the occupant, on this tent being the residence of God, they will use the term tabernacle, Mishkan. When the Bible is focusing on the activities of the priests, then you'll typically find tent or tent of meeting, stressing that this is the site where humans encounter God. Now, the tabernacle, really the construction reveals God's divine character. It showed what was required of sinners to meet with a holy God. And this is why the plans are so important and why they deserve study today. If you think about it, where did these plans come from? Well, they came from God himself. I mean, God showed Moses the pattern of the, taber- of the tabernacle. God was the architect, not man. Over and over in this account, we'll read, and you are to do this, and you are to do this, and you are to do this. You know, that is God telling Moses every detail. And think about that. These commands about building the tabernacle came from the same God who had just given the Ten Commandments. The same God. So God had started showing Moses the design for the tabernacle back in chapter 25 when he told him what was going to go inside. The ark, the table, the lampstand. Then now in chapter 26 we get the description of the tabernacle itself. Not the whole complex, but the main tent that housed the holy place and the Holy of Holies. And as God gave the instructions for the building, you know, he started from the inside out. He started with the Ark of the Covenant, which went inside the Holy of Holies, the place of God's presence. Then he worked his way out to the furniture in the holy place. And then he told Moses how to build the tent where these things would be housed. Now, first, God told Moses how to make the tabernacle. So let's start in Exodus chapter 26. He said, you are to construct the tabernacle itself with ten curtains. You are to make them of finely spun linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with a design of cherubim worked into them. The length of each curtain should be 42 feet and the width of each curtain 6 feet. All the curtains are to have the same measurements. Five of the curtains should be joined together and the other five joined together. Make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the last curtain in the first set. Do the same on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain in the second set so that the loops are lined up together. Also, make 50 gold clasps and join the curtains together with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single unit. This was the innermost layer 
of the tabernacle, made with ten sheets of fabric, each measuring roughly 42 feet by 6 feet. And these sheets were sewn together in sets of five to make these two enormous curtains, which were then joined together by 50 gold clasps. And these sheets, these tapestries, were draped over a frame to, to make the roof and the sides of the innermost area of the tabernacle. And it's important to note a couple of things here. These were made of, of fine white linen. In this case, it was the highest quality, the most expensive grade of linen available. If you want to think of Egyptian cotton type thing, this was the, this was the most expensive linen available. And one of the characteristics of this linen is that it had been bleached and bleached and bleached more thoroughly than than your typical white cloth so that so that it was much brighter and a much purer white color. This would have been the kind of fabric that would have only been worn by kings, by by nobility. And so imagine this bright fine white linen and contrast it with what what Isaiah says for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments that's the contrast to be seen here looking upon ourselves measured by a divine holiness the very best efforts of Christians are comparable to filthy garments and this white linen it typified the manifested purity, the holiness and the righteousness of God. Now, this white linen cloth was adorned with colorful blue and purple and scarlet yarn. And one thing to understand here is that when they're, when they're using the terms of blues, purple and scarlet yarn, they're really talking about the dyes that were used to make this. And the dyes that went in to make the colored yarns were extremely, extremely expensive, especially the, the blue and purple dyes. These were the most expensive dyes available at this time. And again, these were associated with royalty. Uh, and the, this yarn, the coloring, underscores a royal uh, throne room. That That's kind of the setting that that is trying to be communicated here. So either woven into or embroidered onto the white linen were images of the cherubim. And of course, they're representing the angels who guard God's holy throne. We don't know what cherubim looked like exactly, but their appearance would have reminded anyone of dignity, of awesomeness, and even of terror. You know, when you see the cherubim, you know you're going into the holy place. And so inside the tabernacle, both in the holy place and in the holy of holies, the walls are white with embroidered images of the cherubim in blue, in purple, and scarlet. Now this linen, this layer, was covered with a layer of wool, which in turn was covered with two protective layers of animal skins. This is in verse 7. 
You're to make curtains of goat hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Make 11 of these curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 45 feet. You see, the, it's longer than the linen, which was only 42 feet, and the width of each curtain 6 feet. All 11 curtains are to have the same measurements. Join five of the curtains by themselves and the other six curtains by themselves. Then fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops on the edge of one curtain, the outermost in the first set. Make 50 loops on the edge of the corresponding curtain of the second set. Make 50 bronze clasps and put the clasp through the loops and join the tent together so it is a single unit. As for the flap that is left over from the tent curtains, the leftover half curtain is to hang down over the back of the tabernacle. The half yard on one side and the half yard on the other of what is left over uh, along the length of the, tent cur- of the tent curtains should be hanging down over the sides of the tabernacle on either side to cover it. Make a covering for the tent from ram skins dyed red and a covering of manatee skins, sea cows, on top of that. So now you had a second layer that went over the linen. This layer was made of goat hair, a sturdy fabric in the Middle East that nomads would have typically used to make their tents from. And these curtains, as I said, were slightly larger than the ones underneath. Then two more layers on top of that to protect everything underneath from the elements, uh, almost like a tarp. and the outer layers, the outer tent would have been made basically of leather from uh, uh, ram skins and manatees. But one thing I want to point out here, did you notice the transition? We go from fine linen, the most majestic type of cloth, to goat's hair. We go from gold clasps to bronze. And the point here is not interior design. But it's theology. The fine linen and the gold, they're, they're, they all dis- and the, the care in which they are described, the cherubim, this is a reminder that God's presence is here, or God's presence will be here. Now, kind of as a little aside, without the tabernacle, how does God meet with his people? So I want to backtrack for just a minute and remind you where we are. God has called Moses up to the mountain. So the people are still gathered at this point in time at the base of the mountain. And without a tabernacle, they can't leave the mountain. Have you ever thought of that? They're encamped at the base of the mountain. God can call Moses up to the mountain, but he's made a covenant with his people. And... Not that they will stay at the base of the mountain, but his covenant is that they will go into the land promised to their father Abraham. How's God going to be with his people? How are the people going to go and take possession of the land if God can't have his presence travel along? It's the tabernacle that provides this traveling dwelling place for the presence of God. Now, every tent needs tent poles, and the tabernacle is really no exception. And so God told Moses to construct a, uh, a sturdy frame that would have been common for, for tents. 
You're to make, this is uh, continuing on in 2615, you're to make upright planks of acacia wood for the tabernacle. The length of each plank is to be 15 feet and the width of each plank 27 inches. Each plank must be connected with two tenons. Do the same for all the planks of the tabernacle. Make the planks for the tabernacle as follows, 20 planks for the south side, and make 40 silver bases under the 20 planks. 20 bases under the first plank for its two tenons, or two bases, and two bases under the next plank for its two tenons. 20 planks for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, along with their 40 silver bases. Two bases under the first plank and two bases under each plank. And make six planks for the west side of the tabernacle. Make two additional planks for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They're to be paired at the bottom and joined together at the top in a single ring. So it should be for both of them, they will serve as the two corners. There are to be eight planks with their silver bases, 16 bases in total, two bases under the first plank and two bases under each plank. You are to make five crossbars of acacia wood for the flank, for the planks on one side of the tabernacle, five crossbars for the planks on the other side of the tabernacle, and five crossbars for the planks of the back side of the tabernacle on the west. The central crossbar is to run through the middle of the planks from one end to the other. Then overlay the planks with gold and make their rings of gold as the holders for the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. You are to set up the tabernacle according to the plan that has been shown to you on the mountain. So these upright planks or these frames, I was trying to imagine what this would be like. And it would kind of be like uh, taking a 2x12x16. Uh, a by by okay? So if you can imagine a 2x12x16, a, a by, by by maybe cutting off one foot so it's a 2x12x15, and putting two of those together like this. That is the upright plank. And then it was joined by a tenon. So, you know, it made one upright plank. And this is sitting down in two bases of silver. So that is the type of uh, support structure that God told them to, uh, to, build it, uh, to build it with. So there's almost, with, with two uh, bases per column, there's almost a hundred uh, silver bases. And then all of this wood is overlaid with gold. And then once Moses told them how to make the main tent, or mo once Moses knew how to make the main tent, God told him what to put inside. You are to make a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And finally, spun linen with a design of cherubim. Again, worked into it. Hang it on four gold-plated posts of acacia wood that have gold hooks that stand on four silver bases. Hang the veil under the clasp and bring the Ark of the Testimony there behind the veil so that the veil will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place. Put the mercy seat of the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. Place the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table and put the table on the north side. So the curtain described here, that's the veil that divided the tabernacle into its two rooms, sealing off the most holy place from the holy place. Now the whole tabernacle 
measured approximately 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. Not that big. And the holy place was about 15 feet by 30, which meant that the most holy place, the holy of holies, was 15 by 15. And just remember, it's 15 feet tall too, so it's actually a perfect cube. It's 15 by 15 by 15 was the most holy place. And separating these two rooms was a heavy screen suspended by golden clasps. You know, it's what Exodus would later call the shielding curtain. And of course, inside that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And outside in the holy place, as we've already studied, was the lampstand and the table. And finally, God told Moses how to make the flap that covered the doorway, the the entrance. For the entrance to the tent, you're to make a screen embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen. Make five posts of acacia wood for the screen and overlay, overlay them with gold. Their hooks are to be gold and you are to cast five bronze bases for them. And so like the inside of the tabernacle, the curtain that hung across the entrance was made of fine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet red. So this, I hope, gives us a fair idea of what the tabernacle looked like. Now, if you've seen pictures of the tabernacle, you'll probably find that not too, it's very, no two images are going to be the same. They're all different. And the reason for this is that even though this is quite detailed, Moses is the only person who ever saw the original model. You know, before assembling something, it helps to to see the diagram. And this is what God did, what he provided for his prophet. He said, you're to set up up the tabernacle according to the plan uh, that I've shown you on the mountain. So I guess in my mind, God probably showed Moses, I imagine, some kind of 3D prototype of what the tabernacle uh, would look like. You know, in my mind, it's some kind of space age 3D holographic image. Yeah, a hologram that, that God showed uh, showed Moses so that, so that he'd know exactly what it looks like. But the reason we study the tabernacle is, is not so we can draw pictures or build a replica, but so that we can learn what the tabernacle teaches us about God. And so the question is, what did the tabernacle mean? You know, there's two ways to answer these questions. And one way is to see what the New Testament says about the tabernacle and how it is connected to Christ. But before we do that, we need to study what the Old Testament says about the tabernacle and what it meant in the original context. Uh, In a a book called The Shadow of Christ in the Law of Moses, Vern Porthras, he wrote this. He says, we must try to understand the law of Moses within its original context as God gave it to the Israelites. We ought to place ourselves in the position of an Israelite in the time of Moses or even in the position of Moses himself. What would they be thinking about the tabernacle? What could they have legitimately discerned about its significance? That's how you go about thinking about this. And so we start by understanding the tabernacle the way the Israelites did. 
One of the main things God wanted his people to see was that the tabernacle was a piece of heaven on earth. I mean, this is obvious from the very fact that God's presence was there. But God had said to Moses, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. So heaven is where God is. So when God came to live among his people, he brought heaven with him. If you think about, as I said, this is confirmed in the way that that the ark or that the tabernacle was made containing the ark. And, and as I said, the ark of the covenant had it. It represented God's thrones, the figures on it, the cherubim, God's royal attendants uh, and the cherubim on the curtains. So when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, God's sanctuary on earth. He caught a glimpse of heaven where God sits enthroned above the cherubim. Now, God gave these instructions. He gave very specific instructions. And, and I kind of think back on Henry building Legos. There was a time when Henry would get a Lego kit and he would be so excited to put it together that he would kind of skip over some of the uh, detailed instructions and try to finish it really fast. And it would end up that he'd get almost finished and the last few pieces just wouldn't fit together because he'd skipped some of the steps. Now, since then, he's learned to follow these detailed instructions precisely. Uh, but it just made me think of, of the detailed instructions that God gave here. And I was, you know, why God gave these detailed instructions? Well, it's because God takes his place of worship very seriously. One of the interesting things about Israel's worship and their place of worship, as it's contrasted with other ancient peoples of Israel, is that Israel was never really called to be creative. One of the acts of devotion of the other ancient people, you could see it reflected in the inscriptions they would put on worship items. We made this for Marduk. We made this for Baal. But there's something different with the people of Israel. God does not want creativity when it comes to worshiping him or when it comes to constructing a place where he will be worshiped. That's why he gives these scrupulous details. He says, I'm going to tell you how many loops to put in each curtain. I'm going to tell you what color the loops are going to be and which way to point the loops. I'm going to tell you what wood to use. I'm going to tell you what gets covered with what and where it gets placed. And Israel's covenant responsibility was to do exactly as God said. And the reason is that although this structure was made of wood, metal, and cloth, it was a copy of something. Hebrews calls it a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And Moses was warned about this. Hebrews says this, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And again, as the cherubim helped to show, 
the tabernacle was an earthly building designed to teach heavenly realities. It's a microcosm of the universe. Inside was heaven. Outside, earth. And God at the center of it all. You know, the heart of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies where God reigned in glory. The tabernacle itself was at the center of Israel with all 12 tribes surrounding the tabernacle. And Israel at this time was really at the heart of the world, the centerpiece. Israel was the centerpiece in God's plan for saving the nations. And so this little tabernacle was the most important place in the world. A bit, really, when we say heaven on earth, this really was heaven on earth. And, of course, the point was not that somehow God was contained within these four walls. It was simply set up to, like heaven, to show that God rules over both heaven and earth. And as the Israelites thought about the tabernacle and its meaning... They were confronted with a hard reality. Most of them would never get to go inside. They could see it from a distance. And they knew that God had his dwelling place there. But they never even had a chance to see past the door. Let alone go inside and meet with God. Everything was concealed under these layers of fabric. The... the, The description of the tabernacle leaves a lasting impression. The number of coverings and the entrance curtains. You see, though Israel had this tremendous privilege of the divine presence in their midst. And there was no doubt that here is the Holy One. The access to him was no easy matter. Even though his palace and temple was right there in the center of their camp. You know, yes, the tabernacle was the one place in the entire world where people could enter into God's presence. God had come down to live with his people, but there was almost no way for them to get in. This building, this tent, this facility had limited access. Uh, Most Israelites, they only saw the curtains and the other furnishings. When the priest moved the tabernacle from place to place. But they never got to tour the place. You know, my, the, uh, the company that I work has built a, uh, or has uh, got a new building over in Cary. And they had kind of a semi-open house where we got to tour the, the office space. People of Israel didn't get to tour the temple when it was built. Only the priest could enter. And only when they had some priestly duty to perform. And then as soon as they entered, they were confronted with another curtain. The veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And according to the Jewish Talmud, this veil was four inches thick. And took more than a hundred priests to move. Nothing symbolized Israel's limited access really more clearly than the cherubim. You know, the first time cherubim are mentioned, I've talked about this before, is in Genesis 3. After Adam fell, he had to be prevented from entering the garden again and eating the tree of life. 
And so the Lord sent him away from the Garden of Eden, banished him to work the ground from which he was taken. God drove man out and stationed a cherubim and a flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So these cherubim blocked entrance to, the, to Eden. The cherubim on these tapestries in the, in, in the tabernacle represented something similar. In a way, they guarded the way to God. And this was all designed to show the supreme holiness of God, of how God is pure in his majesty and in his righteousness. It was designed to show that we need to be careful how we approach God. (laughs) The Israelites knew this because they had seen God in action. The Israelites had firsthand experience. They had seen what God did to the Egyptians at the Red Sea. They had heard his law. They had seen the lightning and the thunder from the mountain. They knew that he was a holy God who demanded perfect obedience. But they also knew they were sinners. And so they understood perfectly well that even when God came close, they still had to be separated from him. They were probably relieved that they didn't have to go into the, into the tabernacle. So you see, the way to God was almost closed. Almost. But there was one way to enter. The curtains in the tabernacle were doorways. They were designed to, get, to let God's people in. And the way that they could enter God's presence was to send a representative to go in for them. First Moses, and then later the high priest. And the way that this representative penetrated the veil was by carrying an atoning sacrifice for sin. For his sin as well as the sins of the people. This was the only way. The tabernacle did not have a back door. There was only one way inside. You could not sneak in. And even if you could, you would die. The only way for unholy sinners to enter the presence of the holy God was by means of a blood sacrifice. We can't get away from this theme of a blood sacrifice, can we? So the tabernacle was the means by which God's people would learn that sinful man requires a mediator if they're to enjoy the presence of God. And so now we ask the question, okay, what does this show us about Jesus? Well, the God who lived in the tabernacle then is the same God who rules today. He is still the great king enthroned above the cherubim. He is still the Lord of earth. He is God almighty. His character has not changed. He is still the holy God who demands perfect obedience and the just God who punishes sin. He is as awesome today as he was in the days of Moses. And we are still separated by God from our sins. Now, I think sometimes people will wonder why they don't have a closer relationship with God. You hear all the time that people are on a spiritual quest, but never seem to find God. And then you've got some people that will cry out to God when they're in trouble, but they're never quite sure if God is listening or if he's there at all. Or he seems so distant. 
You know, one man that wanted to get closer to God was King David. He had asked, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? In other words, he wanted, he wanted to know who could enter God's holy tabernacle. And this is out of Psalm 15 that he asked this question. And he answers it right after this. So he says first, well, who can dwell in God's tent? And then he says, oh, well, that's simple. The one who lives honestly, practices righteousness, acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend his money at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be moved. Wow, that's all there is to it. <laughs> that's all. If we want to meet with God, well, all we have to do is lead a perfect life. That's simple enough, isn't it? So remember that we've got two strategies for interpreting the tabernacle. One is to study Exodus to learn what the tabernacle meant in its original context, as we've just done. And the other is to see what the New Testament teaches especially as it relates to the person of Christ. And one of the most important verses for understanding the tabernacle comes from the Gospel of John. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You know, dwelt among us, took up residence among us. This verse is important because the Word is took up dwelling uh, and it really comes from the Greek word tabernacle. So the verse means this, the word became flesh. And we said he dwelt. He took up residence. He tabernacled with us. Jesus is now the tabernacle of God. Consider the marvelous construction of the incarnate son of God. We saw how carefully God designed the tabernacle in the wilderness. But think of what was the design what was required for the son of God to become man and live with two natures a divine nature and a human nature the mysteries of the virgin birth the miraculous conception God becoming flesh it's, it's amazing it's wonderful it's kind of mind blowing but to think that Jesus Christ is the true tabernacle. He became the sacred space in a sense where heaven came down to earth. And unlike the first tabernacle, he's not made of silver and gold and linen and acacia wood. He's made of flesh and blood and skin and bone and sinew and tendon. And all of this is joined to divine nature because despite... His humanity. Jesus retains his deity as God, the very Son. And it is this God man Christ that, as we know, was crucified, his body torn by hard nails, the hard nails of our hatred and our sin. And as Jesus hung on that cross, suffering and dying to pay the price for our sin, something miraculous happened at the temple in Jerusalem. That curtain which separated the holy place 
from the most holy place was torn in two. It was ripped apart by the almighty God himself. For the Bible says that Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. And make no mistake here, this was a miracle. If the curtain had only been a bed sheet, someone might have been able to easily rip it in two. But the curtain was way too thick for anyone to tear. And it was torn from top to bottom. Remember, it was 15 feet high. Someone would have had to have climbed up on a ladder to attempt to tear it. But, of course, if, imagine if some priest had started to climb up and started tampering with the curtain. All these other priests would have taken him down and stoned him. All things considered, you know, the only reasonable explanation is that it was a, a divine miracle. The curtain was torn by the hand of God. Imagine how shocked the priests were when they saw this. You know, they stood, they stood outside. They were outside the Holy of Holies, gazing in now on the Ark of the Covenant. The sacred place where God's presence was was now open for all to see. What were they going to do with the curtain? Try to sew it back together? Something monumental had happened in human history. The veil that for more than a millennium had separated God's people from God's presence had parted. And now the way was open for the priests and indeed every person to meet with God in that holy place. And it's really not surprising to learn that, that even in the book of Acts, it says that after Jesus ascended heaven, a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. You know, it's not surprising since priests had witnessed this miracle confirming that the way was now open to God. God had basically opened the curtain and invited them in. And once that curtain was torn, it was no longer a barrier, but a gateway. And as, as you know, the only way that we can approach God is on the basis of a sacrifice. But that is what Jesus provided. By his death on the cross. He paid the price for our sins once for all. In doing that he's gone ahead of us. Into the most holy place. According to Hebrews. It says he entered the most holy place once for all. Not with the blood of goats and with calves. But by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands that was only a copy of the true one. But he entered heaven itself so that he would now appear in the presence of God for us. The mediator that we need. So in other words, when Jesus made his sacrifice... He took it not into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, but to the very throne room of God in heaven. And once Jesus presented his sacrifice in heaven, then that way was open for everyone who, who trusts in Jesus. The way is open to meet with God. 
Hebrews goes on to say, we have confidence to enter the most holy place now by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. That is his body. Fun thing to do sometime would be to go through as you read a New Testament and just take note of how many references there are to the tabernacle and how they relate to Christ. And so what this means is that this restricted access to God's presence. Well, it was to remind the people of Israel that even though he had chosen them, something more had to be done to overcome this wide uh, chasm between his holiness and humanity's impurity. And this chasm was bridged with Christ who now gives free access to the Father for all who take up their cross and follow Him. It is through Christ and by faith in Him that this way is opened. This is also how we gain access to God even after we become Christians. I mean, sometimes as Christians we might feel adrift from God. Slightly distant from him. Sometimes we may no longer have the same sense of access to God through prayer. We may find it hard to concentrate on the truth of scripture. When this happens. I know that I tend to feel this way. I feel like I have to work my way back to God. We assume that it's only when we return to worship and start having devotions and spending more time in prayer and and diligent reading scripture every day that God will accept us. We operate as if our relationship with God, which started by faith in Christ, must be maintained by our works. But that's not true. The truth is that All we need to do is turn to Him. We have that intimate relationship with Christ already. We just may have our backs turned. Do we need forgiveness for sins? Do we need peace through the stress and trials of life? Do we need comfort in our loss? Do we need guidance for a major decision? Provision for material needs? Healing for body and soul. Hope to face the future. Strength to make it through life's daily trials and difficulties. You see, whenever we come to God through faith in Christ, we find that He is all we need. We don't have to work our way to Him. He's there. And He's all we need. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful privilege it is to gather together and spend time in your word. Lord, thank you for the specificity that we find in your word. Thank you for the true tabernacle. Lord, how wonderful it is to see the Old Testament shadows fulfilled in Christ. Grant us the confidence 
to enter the most holy place by the blood of Christ. May we draw near to you with a pure heart. And Father, when we leave here, help us to tell others how to gain access to you, how to enter the Holy of Holies and experience a level of intimacy with you that Israel never could. We ask this in your name. Amen. Look on page 15. 15. You can look at 14 if you'd like. You've seen a different sound. Near Roger. I kept thinking as you're talking about the tabernacle about the design of a snowflake. It always has six projections. Nature never tells God, no, I'm I'm going to be a five-sided Never. And there's so many things like that in the book of nature which absolutely conform to God's word, God's design. But then I think about Jesus. The perfection of the Father. The radiance of the glory of the Father in human flesh. It, it, it staggers you to think how God did do something like that. And then... Uh, yeah, I guess you got excited when I read my better than <laughs> scriptures at the beginning. Well, I, I was thinking, to, you know, when, when Carlo was mentioning how the, when God's presence entered the temple and the priest couldn't even withstand yeah. it, that same presence was given flesh in Christ. To, to imagine that, that very same presence that people could not stand in, in the presence of God. And he calls us to know him. And he says to know him is to have life. Look at page 15. All I want.